You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Brady Dennis, a national environmental reporter for the Washington Post. Today, we have two segments on the role of technology in addressing climate change. Later, I'll be joined by Leanne Randolph, chair of the California Air Resources Board. The, regulator, the regulatory authority behind California's recent decision to ban gasoline-powered engines and automobiles in the years ahead. So stick around for that. But first, we'll hear from Jigger Shah, director of the Loan Programs Office at the Department of Energy. Jigger, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks for having me. And remember, we always want to hear from you, our audience. You can share your thoughts and questions for guests on Washington Post Live by tweeting at PostLive. Jigger, a colleague of mine, um, wrote back in March that you might be the most important man in America when it, when it comes to boosting the nation's uh, deployment to clean energy and the shift toward clean energy. Uh, maybe perhaps beside President Biden or Senator Joe Manchin. And of course, this was before the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. So for viewers who might be surprised to hear that, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what the head, uh, what your job is there at the Energy uh, Department's loan office and how your role has changed and is changing uh, with the passage of the IRA? Well, thanks. And those are very kind words. I'm not sure that the uh, a commercial banker has ever been viewed as powerful, but I appreciate the sentiment. Look, I think America, with the passage of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act, is set to take aggressive action to strengthen our nation's energy security. I think when you think about all the provisions that are in the Inflation Reduction Act, it basically adds roughly $100 billion of additional loan authority to our three existing programs. So that's Title 17, uh, the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, and the Tribal Energy Loan Guarantee Program. And it also adds a really important new program called the Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Program, or 1706, which really allows us to help retool, repower, repurpose, or replace energy infrastructure that ceased operations, or improve the efficiency of existing energy infrastructure that's currently operating. Look, I think that the Loan Programs Office doesn't have money that it gives out. It has loans that we accept loan applications for. And today, we're receiving roughly 1.2 loan applications per week. And we have about 91 active applications that are seeking $92.6 billion in loan requests. And so these are across advanced vehicles and components, advanced nuclear, biofuels, virtual power plants, transmission, critical minerals, storage, carbon management, and more. And so it, we're very excited to be you know, serving American entrepreneurs and innovators. So in some ways, uh, the office that you oversee was essentially a, a dormant under the Trump administration. Um, I, I saw in a recent video when you took the job, you said uh, something to the effect of we're open for business again. And I just before we talk about specific technologies and technologies of scale, I wonder if you could take a minute uh, and talk about how you were trying to scale this office, especially with the um, additional funding that you just mentioned. Uh, how do you how do you meet the demand or the requests, I guess, for loans that are coming from from across different industries? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the the 
process of rehabilitating, you know, the loan programs office is really about trust building. And so it's about reaching out to these growth companies, to these Fortune 500 companies, to infrastructure investors and actually saying, look, this tool is a tool that you absolutely know and believe is necessary to fully realize the promise of these technologies. But it wasn't a reliable tool in the past. It's a reliable tool today. And it's here now. And we have an enabling infrastructure that really wants to see this money go out the door. And I think part of what we've done is also make sure that the office runs like a commercial bank, right? So if you meet the requirements of the office, if you meet the reasonable prospect of repayment, which we, which means that we think we're going to get paid back, then we're going to treat you fairly. It doesn't matter whether you're doing advanced fossil projects, advanced nuclear projects, renewable energy projects, or you know battery manufacturing, critical minerals. We treat everybody exactly the same when they're ready to be processed. We process them. And it's taken a long time to build that trust. But today, we're seeing roughly $7 billion a month of loan applications coming into the office. You mentioned that number and uh, both the number of applications that you're seeing and, and sort of for the amounts that you're seeing. And I wonder if you could uh, expand on that a little bit. How does that, have you seen a big increase in applications since the um, Inflation Reduction Act was passed? And if so, where where are those, what, like, so, what sort of companies and industries are those coming from? And do they sort of align with the priorities of your office or with this administration? Well, I think it's important to recognize that we're private sector led, government enabled in the United States. And so all of the planning in the world is super important, but ultimately the private sector is the one that has to champion those sectors. And so we publish the sectors that we have the most loan applications in every month in our monthly application activity report. And right now, the top three technology categories are advanced vehicle uh, vehicles and components, advanced nuclear and biofuels. But what I would say is that, you know, we are seeing a tremendous amount of additional interest in the loan programs office. And so um, when you think about when the Inflation Reduction Act passed, um, it takes our applicants an average of three to four months to put these applications together. Uh, you know, there's hundreds of files, uh, a lot of work, right? I mean, our average loan application is for a billion dollars. And so you could imagine whether you're working fully in the private sector or whether you're working on innovative technologies here at the loan programs office, it's a long process. And so we know of hundreds of applications that are in pre-consultation with our office uh, that are being prepared, but it'll take them time to get, um, you know, a full application submitted. So I do want to go uh, to a question from one of our audience members, uh, Paul West from Wisconsin, who asks, um, in order to cut emissions in half by 2030, we need to invest more in deploying existing tech than R&D on future tech. How does DOE prioritize its work in terms of the time to impact and geographies where it will have the highest immediate impact? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I think the beauty of the Department of Energy is we can do both, right? So we can do R&D in our extraordinary national laboratories and we can do deployment. But I do think it's an important um, distinction that he's making, which is that for a long time, there was this mistaken notion that if we just do more R&D and pursue more innovation, that the technologies will reach some sort of uh, price reduction and be able to be cheaper than the alternative. And I think what we've all learned uh, today is that the only way to redu reduce prices is to deploy. 
right? So you have to deploy even when technologies are more expensive. And then through the learning curve and learning by doing and incremental innovations all along the way, you get price reductions and you get um, you know, the ability to save money while doing good. But that starts with deployment. And I think for whatever reason, we allow people to think that R&D alone could achieve these cost reductions. And today we know that that's false. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about the existing um, clean technologies uh, for a moment, things that have been around for a long time. We know the price of wind and solar has come down dramatically over the years um, and that their usage is, is uh, increasing steadily. Where you sit, what are the obstacles in scaling them further? And, um, and what role does your office uh, play in that? Well, so we have much less of a role in mature technology. So when you look at our monthly activity report, we have a lot less applications now in for solar and wind. There's a lot of innovation happening there. So for instance, um, we have applications that have come in on advanced uh, tower designs that allow you to get from 80 meter hub heights to 120 meter hub heights. We have some applications that have come in for advanced racking solutions for solar. So in places like Puerto Rico, uh, you can uh, put these solar systems down when a hurricane is coming uh, and so that the panels don't get damaged. So there are some innovations that cross the threshold that um, where uh, private sector banks are still afraid of investing in those next generation technologies where we play an important role. But I would say we've shifted our attention in terms of the applications we've received um, really more towards these advanced sectors right, like nuclear or sustainable aviation fuels or carbon sequestration and storage or hydrogen. Speaking some of some of those other technologies, I did want to ask about um, about that uh, and, and, and whether you could just briefly run through some of the sort of moonshot or as, as you refer to it, earthshot technologies that, um, that maybe aren't quite there yet uh, on, on a scale, a broad scale, but seem to have the most promise. What would you, what would you say to someone who is interested in that? Yeah, I think that, you know, when we talk about these things, it's related to the audience question, which is that um, for a long time, I think that people really did believe that R&D is what reduced costs. And it, it does on an incremental basis. But I think what we've now come to believe and understand is that deployment is what reduces costs. And so when you look at the earth shots and moon shots that people are talking about, it's really around technologies that are already proven. So whether it's geothermal or long duration energy storage or hydrogen, these technologies are already proven. They don't have technology risk. They're just expensive. And what you find is that to get them across the bridge to bankability requires roughly $100 billion of private sector involvement for every single sector. And there's probably 20 or so sectors we need to do. The good news is that, that $2 trillion exists. People have made those commitments at the COPs and other things. But the question is, how do we coordinate with those capital providers to say, how do we de-risk those sectors? Not just through our office of the loan programs office by providing the first five to $10 billion worth of loans, but also through some of our other offices at the Department of Energy where there may be some risks around um, commodity prices or development risks or other things that we can do, things like streamlining permitting or you know other pieces. 
I mean, you mentioned several technologies there. One that certainly engenders a lot of um, opinions and a lot of attention is, is carbon capture. And I wonder what your thoughts are on its role as part of the solution to climate change, um, to getting to sort of the nation's climate goals. Is it, is it a small piece? Do you think it will become larger over time? Where, where does that fall into the, the puzzle of, of actually reaching the goals that President Biden has laid out? Yeah, I think it's important for people to recognize that, you know, while I'm a huge fan of solar and wind power, um, that we're going to need 20 plus technologies to reach the decarbonization goals that the president has laid down by 2035 and then for the full economy by 2050. And carbon sequestration and storage technologies are part of that. So when you think about what's in the National Climate Plan, it talks about a gigaton or more of uh, CO2 that needs to be sequestered every year starting in 2050. And so those technologies have to be ready, mature, and at scale um, and fully market accepted by the private sector by that time. And so we have a critical role to play there. Um, and so whether it's around you know, capturing CO2 from ethanol plants or ammonia plants or methanol plants and, and uh, putting them into CO2 trunk lines into class six wells where we can bury that CO2 underground uh, permanently, or whether it's advanced techniques around direct air capture or other approaches, uh, it, I think it is incumbent upon the Department of Energy to make sure these technologies have uh, been fully proven, but then also deployed at scale so that they actually become a relevant tool when they're needed to decarbonize industrial uh, emissions and other emissions that are critical to living a modern lifestyle. So I, just some context for our viewers, the, the Energy Department's loan, program, loan, loan programs began in, I think, 2005 under, under George W. Bush administration and expanded significantly in the Obama years. Um, this gets to you, what you were saying about the, the 20 or more technologies that, that there are plans to invest in and to scale. Um, you know, historically, the department provided uh, a really crucial loans that helped, as you've said, Tesla get off the ground and become the world's um, largest and most valuable automaker. Of course, there's been critics who, you know, seized on the failure of Solyndra, which was a, a solar company that, that borrowed about a half a billion dollars from the energy department. I just wonder if you could talk about the sort of philosophy of investment and what measures are in place to make sure that the government is, is investing in making wise investments. And then on that same point, you know, there's bound to be some failures that are inevitable. And how do you think about risk in this job and what is, what kind of failures are okay versus what are not? Yeah, it's a great question. And one that, you know, is clearly, uh, you know, on my mind, I think we start with what we've accomplished, right? So the DOE um, has put out roughly $32 billion to date. 13.6 billion of that principal has already been repaid, along with $4.21 billion of interest. We also set aside $5 billion for losses. Only 1.07 billion of that has been fully realized, right? So this program makes money for the federal government. And, you know, it's had a huge impact on, you know, on, as you suggested, electric vehicle manufacturing, battery manufacturing, solar and wind deployment, et cetera. The other thing we've done is we look, we take our responsibility to protect taxpayer resources seriously. And so we've received a tremendous amount of guidance uh, from the Congress uh, through the Energy Act of 2020, as well as the bipartisan infrastructure law related to how LPO evaluates risk 
and ensures proper oversight of our programs. I think today, most outside parties would say that we manage risk as well or better than all of the other lending programs in the federal government. Uh, we've also addressed recommendations of a key independent audit performed by Herb Allison of LPO and our portfolio back in 2012, an earlier time for our office, measuring results against the recommendations in that audit. And we've seen remarkable progress in adequately staffing the office and filling key roles with risk management and underwriting professional staff, standing up a risk division and robust portfolio monitoring and early warning systems, increasing transparency and interagency oversight and proactively protecting taxpayers. So I think that's a really long-winded way of saying we started with 12 employees um, you know, in this office in 2009. Today, we're over 200 uh, you know, men and women that are working together um, to really you know, help America's innovators and entrepreneurs uh, fully realize the deployment of these technologies so we can you know, uh, ensure our nation's energy security. So we spoke about risk just now, and I want to sort of turn that a little bit and say, what what then is your ultimate measure of success? Is it making money back on some of these loans? Is it fueling technologies that that really uh, get us closer to climate goals? How do you measure success, and um, how much do you think your office can help to push the nation toward where uh, the administration has set out uh, for climate goals in the next five to ten years? About a minute here left, so this is probably our yeah. Last. Look, I think this is about American, you know, America, America showing that it has the best technologies in the world, right? When you think about all of the things that we've invented, whether it's solar technology, or wind technology, or EV technology, you know, we have the ability to dominate the landscape around the world as it comes to uh, energy security and our national security. I think when you look at nuclear technologies, we have the best nuclear technologies in the world. When you look at uh, you know, things like carbon sequestration and storage, when you think about hydrogen, all of those technologies were invented here and they're being scaled up here. When you look at our impact in the world today on solar and wind, for instance, every single country in the world prefers to do business with American firms when they're building uh, solar and wind projects. When you look at electric vehicles, every single country in the world looks to Tesla and our technology here in this country as what to emulate, right? And so the question really becomes, how do you make sure the next generation of American innovators and entrepreneurs create that wealth creation here? How do we make sure the next million dollars, million uh, jobs, right, requiring uh, specific trade skills, right, or good paying jobs, and they're trained uh, to be able to do a good quality job without any of the safety concerns or other risks that, you know, are currently uh, in place, right? How do you make sure that we're actually sharing these technologies with other countries around the world to help them with their carbon reduction, but also energy security, right? To me, the LPO plays this critical role to make sure we bridge these technologies from, yes, they were invented here, but now to they're creating jobs here and they're actually projecting um, American power around the world. So, so many questions we didn't get to, but uh, we'll keep an eye on this. And unfortunately, we're out of time for today. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Jigger Shah, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Up next, we'll hear from Leanne Randolph. Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. 
Hi there, I'm Suzanne Kelly, CEO and publisher of The Cypher Brief, a national security-focused media publication. Today, we're talking about protecting our planet and the role of technology, specifically coming together to build climate resilience. And joining me today to talk about this is Chief Sustainability Officer and Senior Vice President of Corporate Responsibility at AT&T, Charlene Lake. Charlene, welcome. Thank you, Suzanne. Thanks for the invitation. I'm looking forward to digging in on this. You know, AT&T has really long been a leader in addressing climate change. Why is climate action important to AT&T? And what is your strategy for addressing climate change? You know, Suzanne, it is so important to us because climate change is affecting our customers' lives, our employees, the communities, our operations. And that's why we are driving reductions in our emissions and we are building climate resilient networks. And we're doing it with a three-part strategy. We have a net zero goal, scope one and two emissions by 2035. Also, the second part of our strategy is about technology. We are so passionate that that's part of the solution. So we've set a goal to enable our business customers to reduce emissions by a gigaton by 2035. And then finally, we all have to prepare and adapt to climate change. It is happening. So we have new data and a tool that we're using to make our network more resilient. You know, let's dig in on that um, carbon neutrality goal for just a moment. What key sources of emissions are you needing to tackle and how do you plan to reduce them? Well, we have to tackle electricity usage. Our electricity represents 99% of our scope two emissions. And it's because customers have such a voracious appetite for data and carrying that data across our network requires energy. So our plan includes several initiatives. We're gonna continue to reduce consumption and increase efficiency. And we're optimizing our networks as we transition from a copper network to the more efficient fiber network. And then of course we have thousands of energy projects across the enterprise every year. The second part of um, what we're doing in this plan is we're procuring uh, renewable energy. Our investment in clean power so far makes us one of the largest corporate purchasers in the US. And then finally, and importantly, we're focusing on our fleet. In fact, we'll uh, soon be piloting battery electric vehicles as we make the transition to either no emission or low emission technology. You know, Charlene, just recently we've seen heat waves. We saw a hurricane that caused billions of dollars worth of damage in the state of Florida. I'm wondering, how does AT&T prepare for the physical impacts of climate change, both in your operations and then also in the communities that you serve? Yeah, that's a really important question. Our customers rely on us for critical connectivity. And so that's why when disaster strikes, you're going to see AT&T there. Um, and because they rely on us for that uh, critical connectivity, we are focused on resilience. And we started planning for the long-term impacts of climate change a while ago, working with the Department of Energy's Argonne National Labs. And the point was to integrate forward-looking, actionable data into our planning. And so now with this data, AT&T is looking decades ahead so we could better assess our risk and boost our resilience. We are integrating the data into our planning tools. We are using it to analyze the vulnerability of our cell sites and what sites need retrofitting to withstand um, extreme weather. We're using it to determine where we put fuel cells and uh, generators for backup power. And the reason we're doing it, it, it only makes sense. We're, we're investing billions of dollars every year in our network. So we have to protect it and we have to make it strong and resilient for our customers. So you have some experience in applying climate data to build resilience. What lessons have you learned and what advice would you offer to other businesses that are looking to do the same thing? 
Well, we're continuing to learn, um, but there's a few things, a few thoughts that, that I could offer. First, we need to get out of our quarter to quarter mentality and really recognize the importance of long-term planning and especially doing it with data, showing the value. We worked with Argonne to pilot our project in the Southeast states where we were most vulnerable. We confirmed the value, we built the business case to expand, and now we have the data for the contiguous United States. Um, the second thing is the value of the data is limited unless it's integrated and that's difficult. You have to know the business, you have to work with stakeholders, you have to prove the impacts, present it visually, and that's difficult because you're changing processes and systems and attitudes. And then finally, I'd say you can't go it alone. We couldn't have accomplished our resiliency plan without Argonne National Labs and other stakeholders. So that's why we're making our climate data publicly available so organizations can assess their own vulnerability and get a step ahead. Communities really need resiliency plans to withstand these extremes. So. Um, you know, we all have to work together and take the initiative to build a resilient world, but it's a collective effort. It is a collective effort. Very well said. Charlene Lake is Chief Sustainability Officer and Senior Vice President of Corporate Responsibility at AT&T. Thank you so much for being here to talk about this. Thanks, Suzanne. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. And to those of you just joining us, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Brady Dennis, a national environmental reporter here at The Post. I'm now joined by Leanne Randolph, chair of the California Air Resources Board and a key figure in her state's recent move to ban gasoline-powered vehicles. Leanne, welcome to the Washington, to Washington Post Live. Thanks for having me. And remember, we always want to hear from you, our audience. You can share your thoughts and questions for guests on Washington Post Live by tweeting at Post Live. Uh, Leanne, I want to start in late August of this year. Uh, California announced a plan to ultimately ban the sale of gasoline uh, vehicles uh, by 2035. The rule, which is issued by your agency, um, will require that all cars sold in the state by then be free of greenhouse gas emissions, such as, such as carbon dioxide. Uh, Governor Newsom described this as the beginning of the end for the internal combustion engine. And I just wonder if you could take us through a little bit about the lead up to that decision, how, why now, how that came to being, your role in that, and, and why you think it's, it's a consequential moment. Right, well, it is an absolutely consequential moment. Um, it's really building a future where 40% uh, of the emissions in California will be reduced um, because those transportation uh, causes 40% of our GHG emissions and causes significant particulate matter, NOx emissions, uh, and other impacts. Uh, and this really was years in the making. California has been uh, a leader in tailpipe emissions uh, regulation. We kicked it off with the catalytic converter back in the day. Um, and so here we are with the opportunity and the technological path uh, to getting to zero emission light duty vehicle 100% sales by 2035. Um, so it really all started with Governor Newsom's executive order towards the end of 2020, stating that we as a state needed to uh, move our transportation sector to zero emission in all sectors, starting with the light duty uh, vehicle sector. And uh, we began the regulatory path um, a little uh, about two years ago, and uh, it culminated in the adoption in August of this year. 
So we heard in the uh, opening video there, Governor Newsom talk about how um, certain companies, auto companies, had em had embraced this, and uh, heard you, I think, uh, speak about how you had considered supply chains and and other uh, elements of timing. And I just wonder if you could expand on that a little bit and uh, talk about how confident you are that that the bulk of the auto industry will embrace this move. And on that timeline, I mean, the industry hasn't always even embraced uh, more efficient gas vehicles. And so I just wonder what um, what gives you the confidence that that this transition will happen at the pace that California would like it to happen? So first I'll start with a little detail. So this uh, rulemaking, which is called Advanced Clean Cars 2, is a follow-up to advance, the first Advanced Clean Cars regulation, um, which required uh, automakers to have a certain percentage of vehicles be zero emission. So it's really building on uh, a, a basic regulatory framework and making it fundamentally stronger. And it starts with model year 2026. Uh, and so that's an important detail because it does give the automakers time uh, to uh, consider the products that they're gonna produce uh, to meet this requirement. And it, it builds on the existing requirement that apply to the model years that are currently out being sold right now. Um, so it really is a, uh, we're able to follow on, we're able to look at what the fleets look like now and uh, chart a path based on how we think the fleets are looking in the future. And there's, a, there's an international movement towards zero emission vehicles and the automakers are seeing that. They are seeing the incredible success we've had here in the United States. They're seeing the incredible success that is building in the European Union and in China. Um, and, and they know that the world is moving to zero and they need to be part of that transition um, and they need to be creating vehicles that, um, that people want to drive and will purchase. I wonder if you could um, elaborate a little bit on what you are seeing other states doing in the wake of California's announcement. I think for our audience, traditionally, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, 12 or about a dozen or more states have traditionally followed California's lead on, on um, the efficiency of, of vehicles and, uh, and other uh, related uh, tailpipe uh, standards. So how many states do you expect to follow the lead on this and on what time frame? And what do you see um, as being some of the obstacles to that in, in certain states, whether it's wanting to or the ability to or that kind of thing? Right. So we had 17 states follow us on ACC uh, one. Um, and so we expect many of those states to also adopt ACC two. Uh, several uh, already have their processes in, more, in the works. Um, and we, we think the, the bulk of the states that traditionally follow us will continue to follow us in this, in this rulemaking. And I will say having the bold action by uh, Congress and um, the Biden administration is really gonna help with that. Um, because some of the concerns we hear from other states is, you know, how are we going to meet the infrastructure needs um, to deploy these vehicles and the investments in the Inflation Reduction Act um, and in the um, Infrastructure Act will help states deploy uh, 
charging infrastructure throughout the country. The NEVI program um, will uh, provide for alternative fuel corridors throughout the country. Um, and every state and the District of Columbia have um, submitted plans to deploy that infrastructure. Uh, and so that's a really exciting way to support the states that are adopting these rules, as well as states that maybe, have, you know, we don't traditionally think of participating that may be enticed to participate because uh, states that, that don't adopt these rules are gonna see cars being deployed in other states and, and really want uh, their residents to be able to take advantage of uh, these cleaner, uh, newer technologies. So this is obviously a, um, a sea change or, or will be for the auto industry and for consumers and for supply chains. And, and I want to make sure I'm going to read these figures, which uh, to make sure I get them correct. I, I believe and correct me if I'm wrong again, that California has an interim target requiring that 35 percent of new passenger vehicles sold by 2026 produce zero emissions. Uh, my understanding is you're currently at about 16 percent. So that's that's a significant jump just three years from now. Can you walk us through what needs to happen in order for California to hit that early mark, whether it's from the state side, from the automaker side, from consumer sales? Like what, what will it take to actually reach that goal? Uh, I would say all of the above. Um, I mean, the automakers need to step up and produce the vehicles. Uh, and right now they're incredibly popular um, and there is, there's a lot of demand and interest, so I'm confident the automakers will continue to produce what they need to produce. Uh, we need to continue to deploy infrastructure. Uh, we have a strong presence of infrastructure here in California, um, both slower chargers and increasingly uh, DC fast charging. And um, the California legislature and Governor Newsom adopted a $10 billion package um, that will be deployed over a six-year period that support infrastructure development and vehicle incentives. So we also assist customers with purchasing vehicles um, and uh, you know, help defray the additional upfront cost. Um, the total cost of ownership of uh, zero emission vehicles uh, in many instances is cheaper because battery electric vehicles, for instance, um, have lower maintenance costs. Um, but getting folks over that initial hump uh, and, and helping with incentives is one way to deploy vehicles. And we're also working with uh, our sister agencies and um, nonprofit organizations to really tout the benefits of uh, zero emission vehicles, the importance of zero emission vehicles in communities, um, we have a provision in our uh, regulatory package that allows automakers to earn credits for programs that help deploy zero emission vehicles in lower income communities um, and into car sharing programs that serve uh, lower income communities. Uh, and so we're really just looking for ways to get these vehicles deployed throughout the state. Speaking of that, and you and you alluded to this um, in your answer just a moment ago, but I wanted to to go a little deeper. Um, how concerned are you, as far as from an infrastructure um, perspective, that the state can build out, you know, charging stations, transmission lines, that kind of thing, um, on the timeline that you need to 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 hit these goals, 
And do you worry at all that, that the failure to do that could undercut the ambitions you have to, to make this transition? I am very confident that we will have the infrastructure we need um, to make this transition. And the reason is we are working very closely with our sister agencies and with utilities in the state uh, to identify the barriers and the challenges to infrastructure deployment and addressing those. So as I mentioned, deploying funding um, to support uh, the build out of infrastructure, um, working with the utilities on identifying where uh, system upgrades will be necessary. California is embarking on a major transition away from fossil fuels and towards electrification. So that entire transition is gonna take a lot of work. Fortunately, the light duty um, vehicle sector is actually from a demand perspective, kind of a small piece of the picture. Uh, just yesterday, our board considered the first of two hearings um, to consider an advanced clean fleets regulation that would transition medium and heavy duty vehicles to zero emission. And that is gonna uh, definitely present an infrastructure challenge because those vehicles are, um, are much larger and the way they, they move in the world is very different than light duty vehicles. So there's gonna be a lot to unpack when it comes to deploying that infrastructure. So to me, I'm feeling like the light duty uh, sector is, is well on its way. Um, and uh, I'm very confident, as I mentioned, with the assistance of the investments from the federal government, um, that we will be able to meet that demand in, the, in deploying the light duty vehicles. I do hope to get back to the heavy duty vehicle question uh, in just a moment, but I wanna make sure to get to one question from our audience and, and you know, an issue that some people have raised, of course, is, is this, this idea of whether people will, will hold on to their gas powered vehicles for a long time uh, so that you, know, you could still have gas, gas guzzling vehicles on the road in 2050 or beyond. And so that brings us to a question from our audience member, Jeffrey Davis of New Jersey, uh, who wants to know how the government and private industry can promote the use of clean energy and let's say specifically EVs here, um, when the public has some slow adoption concerns? Um, I guess I would say a few things. Uh, as I mentioned, we are uh, working with um, both state and federal partners and uh, nonprofits to really tout the uh, the, the benefits and the importance of zero emission vehicles. But, you know, the bottom line is that the people who most want to promote these vehicles are the manufacturers, right? Uh, I mean, I think we were all seeing those ads on the Super Bowl this year about how, um, what amazing options there are out there now for zero emission vehicles. Um, and so that's a, that's a key opportunity to, Think of these not just as, uh, you know, cleaning the air and saving the planet, but thinking of them as a product that people want to buy um, and being, uh, you know, supportive and creating that, um, that buzz and that energy around moving toward a zero emission future for our, you know, for our planet um, and combining that interest and excitement in new technology with cleaning the planet. I do, as promised, want to get back to the question of heavy duty vehicles, because I think it is, is an important part of this. 
you've proposed effectively to uh, to ban diesel-powered uh, buses and trucks, I believe by 2040. Um, there's some pushback from that initially from utilities, from trucking companies, from from other folks. How do you get all the folks involved on board and in the same direction on that? And as you mentioned, just logistically and practically, it's it's a different question than the cars that most of us drive every day. What what are the different challenges, and and how do you see getting uh, getting past those? Right. Well, the first challenge is the challenge of uh, of imagination. You would not believe how many people don't realize that there are large class eight trucks, you know, that can pull full trailers that are zero emission. There are there are battery electric ones. There are hydrogen fuel cell ones. And then all through um, the medium and heavy duty sectors, there are delivery trucks, box trucks, um, all sorts of vehicles that are zero emission. So starting to, to get those on the road and having people see them um, is, is a big first step. And um, I've been to truck showcases um, and presentations where uh, people just can't get over how um, quiet and smooth um, and of course not smelly these trucks are. Um, and I'll, and I'll uh, sort of remind folks that uh, buses are a big piece of this, right? School buses, putting kids on buses that are quiet and zero emission instead of rumbling diesel spewing. Um, vehicles is is such an exciting opportunity. So so getting people to see the future is the first step. Um, and getting them to understand that future is is here. It's it's coming. Um, the second step is uh, setting forth a clear regulatory path um, with clear timelines of how we're going to make this transition, working with uh, the manufacturers and the customers, uh, so that we can help address the challenges that are inevitably going to come. And working closely with, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the utilities, our um, energy planning agencies, our energy regulatory agencies, to ensure that the grid needs are there, um, that depot charging facilities are able to be constructed and energized and connected to the grid, um, and that we also think about how retail charging will work for some of those trucks that may need to not go back to depot every night um, and may need to have medium and heavy duty public charging options. Um, some of the truck stop companies are really looking into this as a growth opportunity to start thinking about charging plazas at their locations and how they can add those amenities for their customers. So there's a huge amount of economic opportunity and energy around this transition. And the last thing I'll mention is, particularly in the heavy duty sector, these the benefits to communities of making this transition cannot be overstated. We have people living near ports, living alongside freeways, living near warehouses, that are impacted by diesel pollution every day. And getting rid of the dirtiest of the dirty vehicles and moving them to zero emission will fundamentally change lives. And we need to make this transition as soon as we conceivably can. 
Well, I'm sure we have lots more questions about this uh, that we hope to ask you over the coming months and years. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time for today. So Leanne Randolph, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.